Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Good afternoon. It's very nice to see so many people coming on a Sunday afternoon, leaving your usual worldly concerns behind for a while. <coughs> The theme, the theme, as far as I remember, is, you know, um, before the summer uh, Sunday talks are starting, the Sangha is getting a blank paper and can make suggestions for themes for talks. So then somehow the themes are distributed and then how it works out that we, that I, happened to give a talk today is a mere, mere uh, coincidence. So I didn't choose it, but it's quite timely. Uh, it's beyond worldly aims and values. What, what is, uh, what is next? Beyond worldly aims and values, what is next? Or what is left? What is left? And that is very interesting because I just come from the family camp. You know, the family camp was running for nine days. It's the last day today. And the theme for the family, for this year's family events was, uh, the eight worldly winds. And some of you may know the eight worldly winds are what blows the world around, what makes the world move around and also suffer. So that is four pairs of opposites. So it's gain and loss, which is usually more material gain and loss, maybe including also health, you know, gain and loss regarding health. Um, so that's the first pair of opposites. And the second one is... Um, Honor, dishonor, or um, status and losing status, gaining status, lo losing status. And the third is happiness and pain. And the last pair is praise and blame. And I think you have all been blown around by these. <laughs> You don't need to make much effort. And even, I mean, I was surprised, I was reading a little bit, you know, and to prepare myself for the family uh, camp this year and also for today. Um, the Buddha states very clearly that, you know, the eight worldly wind is, it's not only that you are blown around by them as, as you know, householders or living in the world, but also monastics are blown around by them. So it, when once we ordain, that doesn't stop. We still can experience, you know, gain and loss in terms of, you know, when you get old and you lose your physical abilities um, or you, you, you know, get good medication, have nice exercises and oh, suddenly I can move again, I can sit again for meditation for hours. And uh, then, of course, you know, life goes on and suddenly uh, you lose it again. So we, we can see with health matters, we, in the course of, you know, when you watch your own life and when you are younger, you might not experience it so much on your own, but you might experience it with your parents and grandparents. You know, you can train yourself up, but at some point you lose it. 
And that doesn't mean that you don't train yourself up. To a certain degree, it's probably good to exercise your body and just try to keep healthy and and uh, flexible. And it's good to do it with the perspective that, yeah, we do what we can. <coughs> and looking, just being very aware that at some point I may lose it, you know. Most of us may wish that we die in bed, you know, we don't, without noticing, you know, live happily until we are 89 and then don't wake up. <laughs> no pain, no disease, no uh, ailment. And that is quite human, you know, to, to try to avoid the downfalls of life. But it's not really in our control, so it's good to know that. So in regards to gain and loss, very clearly, most of you have experienced gain and loss, both. And most of you might wish gain and dread loss. And the same for yeah, good reputation, bad reputation, or nobody would wish for a bad reputation. Uh, and it's so beautiful to see with the children, you know, they really like to behave well so that they get praised. So praise and blame is very connected to that. You know, everybody loves to get pla uh, praised and nobody likes to be blamed or criticized. And we, are, we are quite vulnerable beings in that sense. You know, even Even if somebody feels they have done all the right things and still when somebody is coming, why did you do that? Immediately you feel pain in the heart. And um, so the way we speak with each other affects us. You know? And still it's very interesting that, you know, I didn't do anything. I could just if somebody comes and oh why did you do that? I could actually be very unmoved by that and maybe just a little bit puzzled, you know, how how does it come that they speak like this to me, that they believe that because, you know, in my experience I I didn't do anything wrong and still people come and complain and sometimes it's hearsay, sometimes they just have very different perceptions about how things should be. Or, or they, what they maybe see you doing is different from what you intend to do. So there are lots of, of these misunderstandings which create a sense of disrepute, disrepute. Sorry, I must apologize because I'm German and sometimes I may get some terms wrong. But uh, I hope that it's clear enough. <clears throat> So, you know, we have very strong words for, for that dis, despicable, you know, despicable. It's, it's a terrible word, you know. Um, I, I think it's in, in, is it the Messiah from, from Handel, where, where the, there's a part about where the suffering of Jesus is described in, in an aria and, or in, yeah, and it's, He was bad at. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this was the the old ways really to express uh, that you dishonor somebody, you spit at them. That was the strongest kind of disgrace. So the human history is full of of honor and dishonor, different ways, um, and. In the course of our lives, we have experienced it, you know, the good side of it and the bad side of it. And so I think most of us have probably become quite sensitive and don't want to do it to others. And still, you know, if you're honest, it's easier to be friendly with some people and with other people's people it doesn't, 
doesn't work so easily and and they may experience that as as you know being put down because they are not recognized they are not appreciated for what they are doing so that is all part of worldly life you know so and then if it comes to happiness and pain misery <laughs> we know that you know i mean that is that is basically the the with all these different worldly winds happiness and pain is the subjective feeling of it you know when i'm getting praised i'm happy when i gain something i'm happy so happiness is really the peak of the experience yeah and then misery pain is the downside of it and it goes up and down we we hope it doesn't go too deep down but daily experiences up and down sun this morning rain the poor families had to get their tents together in rain and those who procrastinated a bit can now take their dry tents <laughs> uh, so we never know you know um, and if it comes yeah praise and blame is is kind of i think i have covered that already um now the people who get praised become famous you know and then you can get really uh, used to be famous and then some somebody else appears on the horizon and the star from yesterday isn't recognized you know it's huge dramas the the papers are full of it <laughs> and so all these worldly winds you know we get blown around by them we learn to know them and how much do we really learn to respond wisely to them in in worldly term, terms probably wise means you become more alert you you see your chances you are quicker you you know get your advantage um you're more clever you get more qualified you train yourself up so that the bad things can never happen to you may happen to others not to you not to me hmm? um and that's the worldly way to deal with it to try to stay on top not to feel pain and even if it may work out that you know i don't know whether here are very wealthy people but when they do research the wealthy people are not the happy people when they try to measure happiness i think there's a recent research done in the uk trying to find out which income makes people most happy and surprise surprise the the when they asked the wealthy people they were not content they were not happy they were always in, in stress and so the people who seemed to be most relaxed with their lives and most content i don't know whether it's true i was told that of people who earn something like 40 or 50000 pounds a year and that is far beyond average you know it's it's but that seems to be the kind of um comfortable wealth where you don't have too many duties but if you look closer you know even somebody who just has a little bit you always are afraid that you lose it nowadays you have to i mean even if you have your own business you never know how what happens next year and so living in the world will never be free of stress and and fear so this is why people often come to monasteries because they want to learn a different approach to life they want 
want to learn meditation. They want to be peaceful. They want to learn something which doesn't make them so dependent on uh, the worldly winds, not so easily blown around. And I don't know whether that's true for you while you are here. I mean, obviously, everybody who does something does it for a reason. So you might might come for entertainment. <laughs> you might find entertainment much more easily, you know, in other places. But the Dhamma, you know, the, the Buddha Dhamma obviously does offer something which gives us the hope that we can um, find peace with the way things are, so that we are less vulnerable, less driven around. And it's probably not a quick fix, you know, it's it's a gradual learning and when I came to the monastery, I thought, oh, you know, I become a novice for three years and then I'm happy. <laughs> I just train myself for three years and then I go back to lay, lay life and I'm a much happier person and I'm a much calmer, patient and content person. And probably that would have been true only after maybe... After one and a half years, it was in the winter retreat. We have this three-month winter retreat here at Amaravati, where we, from January to March, we don't have the usual work, the usual responsibilities, and our responsibility for three months is really to meditate and watch the mind. And not that that is always comfortable, but at least it gives us time to watch the mind and see really what the fabric of our suffering and happiness is. So I was sitting and meditating and I had quite, a, I must have quite a good time where things really relaxed inwardly, where I found some peace that the mind can relax and that the you know, we have not only defenses towards the outside world, we also have defenses towards our own thoughts and feelings. So obviously, my inner resistance to to feel more deeply had relaxed so that things were, were coming up. And what was coming up was this, I don't want to go back to school. So I was a school teacher, you know. I don't want to, I don't, I, I think it was, I don't have to go back to school. And it was a strange thought. I, I sit here, you know, not, nothing to do with school. Suddenly this thought comes up. I don't have to go back to school. And I found myself in tears and tears and tears. I mean, the tears were just running. And, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Um, and I realized that I had been a school teacher for, I mean, on and off, I was an artist, but I was teaching art in school. That was the best way to make my living. And I was really identified with my job. I thought I'd do it well. I like to do it. It gives me good living. It's a wonderful way to live. And in my conscious personality, I was... I thought I'm quite happy. I just can learn a little bit more Buddhist meditation <laughs> and more patience. And there I was, you know, I was sitting and just the tears were streaming down and there was such a happiness with the inside. I don't have to go back to school. It was it was were tears of relief, actually. And I was surprised because I, up to that, point, I hadn't even dared to notice that I wasn't happy with what I was doing. (laughs) Because 
probably I didn't have an, I didn't think that I have have an option. So among the options I had, that seemed to be the best thing. So I was holding on to it. And just to allow the insight to come in that I don't have to go back. Oh, such a relief. But then, you know, I think the second day or so, the thought came, yeah, but what, what, what am I going to do if I, if I don't get, go back to school? And I could, could feel the fear arising, you know? And then, I thought, oh, you know, if I don't have any ideas, I can still become a nun. <laughs> so this this was the first time that the possibility I could become a nun, that window would really open before, no, I didn't want to become a nun. <laughs> so I think for the rest of the retreat and quite some while, I started to look more closely what what is it to be a nun? You know, what is different with nun's life? What is so special about it? Why why would I want to become a nun even? <clears throat> and I could see that monastic life is not free of suffering, you know. You have you know, you do your chores, you do your work, you do it well, you get criticized, you get praised. You get more work. If you're good at it, you get more work. One of the monks told me, you know, when you're in the monastery, you have really to be careful that you don't show that you can do something too well, because they they will just give you more of it. <laughs> and I thought, this is, this is a poor choice. This is not how I want to live, you know. So... Yeah, of course, we have to learn, you know, I, it's, it's enjoyable to do good work. And, uh, also, we have to learn how to set boundaries, you know, say, you know, now I'm tired, now it's good to stop. But the good thing is that we don't really have to struggle for, you know, thanks to your support, I, suppose <laughs> we don't really have to struggle for survival you know that is really very clever cleverly set up by the buddha that the the monastic order is in that sense liberated from from the struggle for survival and of course that does only work when what we do is valued enough by the lay community that they want to support us. So we are not supposed to go begging in that sense. It's more that, um, you know, when we live the monastic life, we manifest a way of living which shows the way beyond suffering. And of course, it's not just getting the support and being lazy and happy. It's also really to practice, you know, to apply the teachings of the Buddha. So what did the Buddha then say about, you know, how to go beyond worldly aims and values? Um, and of course, he said a lot, so I can't... Uh, present that all here, but most of you might be familiar with the three characteristics, so that we work, in meditation we work with the three characteristics. Whatever state of mind we are in, whatever we experience, we consider it to be impermanent, not lasting, so it's changing all the time. That is number one. And the second is that it is in some ways stressful. It's the Buddha calls it dukkha, which has a whole range of um, uncomfortable experience. So from from slight disease with things, irritation, to different levels of stress, disappointment, anger, 
about things fury grief you know the the words go pain grief and despair you know it it, it can get really very strong and so everything which which we encounter will in some ways disappoint us even the best of it i mean you with the families we were watching this wonderful movie uh, samsara i don't know who of you have seen that which is just a series of long shots very um very silent one and a half hours pictures of the what is going on in the world from from you know watching volcanoes watching beautiful landscape watching day and night winter and summer with this time lapse cameras so that you can really it's a meditation on change really that how natural change is and then they have these shots on Japanese underground stations and uh, traffic systems with I don't know how many highways are, you know, six, eight different levels of traffic. <laughs> it's just <laughs> unbelievable. And then factories, you know, the, the, where, where human beings just become part of machines. And in thousands, I mean, they have these shots of these halls, which is, in a way, we all know that this exists, but when, when you see it, it's really shocking that people live a life, you know, I don't know, eight hours, ten hours a day, where they just have to follow the, the you know, machine, basically, and putting things together. And... Um, and I must say, the most shocking for me was to see how they, the industrial farming of, of animals, it's just unbelievable. I could cry here, really, where I sit, just when I bring up the, these pictures. You know, these chicken farms where they're just swept in with a machine into a, so they, the chickens and get out of their cages, and then they, the machine comes in like a hoover, you know, sweeps them in, and then go, they go into the, get processed, and then they all come, come out like this. And then it's a huge hall where all these, these chicken bodies kind of uh, meander through on these electric rails. And then, you know, one person takes the leg meat off and puts it down. And, so it's it's everything is is scientifically uh, designed to be the quickest way to to do that, and I mean these poor people who do that, you know, there's there's no respect for life, and for their own life in a way, as well as as for animal life. And the same for pigs or for cows. I mean, it's it's how I mean I I don't know Japan and uh, China where they have so many people living you know in 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 one place basically they obviously have to do something like this to survive but you know what is the quality of life when we get to that point of dishonoring our lives and other lives. You know, they showed prisons, and the prisons seem to be sometimes also with thousands of people. You know, the prisons seem to be sometimes more human than the factories. <laughs> you know, in a way, no difference. Maybe apart from a few hours in the evening where you can do what you want. Um, that was, you know, to see what is going on nowadays in the world is... Uh, sometimes shocking and sometimes also 
healing maybe from from certain kind of illusion you know that everything is fine it's not and yet i don't want to make you miserable when when i say that so you all i know everybody wants to be happy we get born to be happy every child goes ha ah, you know when the mother comes it's like the sun is shining you know and that was also in in this movie actually the the only beautiful moments were where parents were shown with caring for their children that was really the the kind of warm moments you know which seemed you can't destroy that i don't know whether you can't but obviously that was designed in this movie to be a value which is uplifting and and still keeping the whole drama together somehow um and i could see this that and and you might might it might resonate resonate with you i could see with the families to teach the full dhamma is not easy because the buddha did leave his family you know he did leave his wife and child not because he didn't care it was because he cared and that is so much beyond worldly aims and values you know worldly family values so in terms of the, the families only could see it as he abandoned his wife and child you know he he didn't do his duty he didn't love them he why did the buddha go away you know why is that not acknowledged that that wasn't a good thing to do no it was a good thing to do so why was it a good thing to do and then it was very interesting then then there was a lot of discussion you know oh yeah the buddha left household life when he was 29 and he married when he was 16 so what happened so he got his child when he was 29 so what happened in the 13 years in between so we can only imagine you know the, there are no records in the theravada scriptures the the teachings of the buddha there are lots of of tales and partly they are taken from the previous tale the, the lives of the pre, uh, previous buddha tales so um the there are no records really what happened in this time between he was married and 29 and even the story about him riding out with going out with his charioteer and seeing the uh, sick man that old man the dead man and the the religious seeker that's not from this buddha you know from shakyamuni buddha time so that is from a previous buddha and it might well have been you know and his parents were told that he would become either a universal monarch or a buddha so there was a prediction and everybody in the family knew about it so probably his wife knew about it the buddha knew about it so they might have engaged in in you know quite some spiritual seeking also together so there there might have well been a, a agreement you know that the buddha could leave for the sake of the family his father definitely according to the scriptures didn't like it but because he lost his his um follower for the throne you know as a as a king you want to want that your son becomes the next king and then he lost rahula his grandson you know who was ordained as a monk which made the father very upset so that he complained um so since then there is a there's a venaya rule which says that you can only ordain somebody if the parents agree you know for the for the sake of the social peace in in the family 
Um, so this area, these 13 years, are open to speculations and projections. And it's it, quite interesting if you, if you, I could see when I was thinking about it, I could just see what my mind likes to speculate about, uh, you know, how I would like to see it. <clears throat> but the fact is that we don't know. We can only know from historic uh, evidence that in those times it was quite common that the fathers were not living with their family, they had business somewhere and was, or, I mean, as a king or prince. So uh, the whole family was set up in a very different way than our small families nowadays. Um, so obviously the mother was taken care of and the child was taken care of. And um, Then when the Buddha, after he realized enlightenment, he the first um, thing which came to his mind was that he wanted to bring the full teaching to his former teachers. And then he found out that both had died, so he couldn't. And so he was teaching his former, uh, dis how to say, ascetics with whom he had been living, living and was teaching them the Four Noble Truths so that, and, and the dependent origination, which was when they uh, attained enlightenment through that teaching. So, and then, then he set off to wander back to where his family was uh, to bring his teachings to his family. So when he came, arrived there, his son was eight years old. And so I think that is also part, actually part of the sutta, so that is uh, recorded story from his lifetime, that when he arrived at the court, his father's court, and the family gathered, his former wife was saying to Rahula, his son, go to your father and ask him for your inheritance. And so Rahula did. And then the Buddha offered him ordination. You know, that was his real inheritance, not, not the money, which he would, you know, legally probably have been entitled to pass on to Rahula. No, you know, he, he, he went beyond that sense of gain and offered him the ordination, which of course upset the king. He lost his second hair for the throne. And then Rahula did attain enlightenment, you know, so, and his wife became ordained, his stepmother became ordained, the poor king. <laughs> was left alone, and uh, so they became the first bhikkhunis. So that was really the value he could pass on, you know, how to how to go beyond the worldly suffering. Um, so how to go beyond the worldly suffering? Again, it comes back to, I mean, when we meditate, you know, one skill you learn in meditation is that you learn to calm your mind so that this kind of feverish way we think and worry and plan and remember uh, that that can settle so that we just come back to the presence of this moment you know, which is usually when we choose a quiet place is peaceful And instead of focusing on, on what is going on with our thoughts, we focus on the body, you know, which is rather in the present moment and not concerned with the past and the future. So this is how we come to the present moment and, and learn to slow down 
and learn actually to learn the skills how to direct attention to an object which is peaceful and not stressful. Now the breath is a very peaceful object if you are not sick. Or just physical sensations, you know, in just the the way the body is moving with the breath. Or just the warmth or the cold or the gravity, the way we touch the floor. That these these mind objects or meditation objects can um, calm the mind down and actually also calm the body down. And then once the body is, uh, the mind is getting a bit calmer, then we can start to observe what is going on in the mind and can reflect on impermanence of things and experiences. So instead of, you know, the worldly way would be probably that you, oh, there's water, I need water. And what's next? You know, you, the, the senses, you want to set, uh, gratify the senses. So we are always on the watch out for something beautiful, you know, who's that? You know, oh yeah, and some, and you know, even you can read Buddhist texts with some kind of curiosity and, and interest to be entertained. But I hope you will get a bit more than entertainment. So it's not that, that, you know, when you're a Buddhist, a practicing Buddhist, you don't pay attention to the senses. You just do it with a different attitude. So I think what I learned is that the senses, you know, you have this, oh yeah, I want this. I don't tell you what I like to eat. We don't do that. But of course you have preferences. You know, you see something on the survey, you see it already, you know, three dishes ahead. <laughs> so, okay, just breathe. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we learn to know ourselves and then we learn to respond in a way that we don't get into the rat race. So, right. And I, if you do that, you know, you don't have to... Uh, be harsh to yourself. Be more curious. You know, when you like something, be really curious what this liking is like. You know, when you like to eat something, you, you know, feel how the saliva is <laughs> flowing and the mind goes, oh, you, know, it, you get slightly excited. So what, what is that on a physical level? You know, really feel. It, don't try to just suppress it. I, I shouldn't feel like this. It's impermanent, you know. No, don't try to to deaden your experience. Just be more curious. How funny it is actually <laughs> when we like something, and then you you get it, and then so what is so exciting about it is actually not. It's when you have it, it's actually not exciting any longer. It's just the the expectation. I think the that you can have it. And you have a memory from, oh, this was good, you know. And the actual experience is pretty, even if it's satisfying, the satisfaction is very short, and then it's just, you find out. You know, I don't have to describe that. Uh, but be curious and see really what, what this excitement for for pleasure you know, this, this longing for pleasure is made of, and what is the experience of it? And how much, you know, how long does it last until you want the next thing, because this is not exciting enough any longer. So we need constant change. So when we follow the senses, we are bound to be driven around and bound to this endless yeah, it's short satisfaction, and then, mm, what's next? And so when you look through that, you, what happens is there's a certain kind of dispassion. You just realize it's not worth the effort. Not that you need to leave your favorite dish out, but you realize you get a bit cooler about it. 
it doesn't, it's not so important any longer, whether you have it or not, a big piece or small piece. I just do a diet and I have to try to eat without sugar and I can see how... <laughs> Today they had ice cream, that, ice, that very nice thing because it was the last day of the family camp. And I couldn't eat ice cream, I couldn't eat that, I couldn't eat that. Okay, I just ate the boring things. I, I, I really enjoyed it because it was nourishing. And it was quite calm. It was quite peaceful <laughs> to eat that. So we can get really also tired of excitement. We can see that excitement is is a is a form of stress. It has a pleasant side, and it definitely has a more painful side to it. So. <clears throat> and when the Buddha was teaching like this, you know, he, he was teaching... <clears throat> There's one sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, I think it's, for those who like to look that up, it's Anguttara Nikaya 8.6, and it's called The Failings of the World. So it's exactly about this, you know, that, that all the worldly values we have get disappointed. So it, in that sense, it's a failing. They always kind of, first you get the good side of it, then you get the downside of it. So it's always flipping over. And so when we get... Um, enmeshed in this kind of, oh, you're wonderful, wonderful, I want more of this. Then we never free ourselves from that. Then we, we stay bound in the cycle you know, of samsara. And so he, in, in the very, his, sometimes these teachings are so clear that it's a bit, you know, the, word, the worldling, the unenlightened worldling, engages and enjoys in the worldly pleasures. And then he has to suffer from the failure of it, the, the downside and the you know, consequences that they don't last. And so what does then the noble disciple do? So the noble disciple discerns when he sees pleasurable things, that this is not lasting, that this is in some ways dissatisfactory, leading to suffering, and that I don't have control over it. So it's in, in the Buddhist way of speaking, it's not mine, it's not, not what I am, it's not what is belonging to me. So in this sense, he cultivates dispassion with the things of the world. And with that, slowly, slowly, the heart gets released from these strong pulls towards what is pleasurable or aversion against what we don't like. So that means we are willing to bear with what is. Most of you have probably come for Long Po's, Long Po Sumido's talks, who was just teaching again and again since I know him the way it is being content with the way it is, to understand the way it is, not to want to have it otherwise. Or even if we want to have it otherwise, then look at this wanting it otherwise, and that's on our side the way it is, not then trying to beat ourselves up that we have the wrong attitude. Just really just acknowledge, oh, this is my inner reality at the moment, this, this kind of longing to have it otherwise. And how does it feel? Yes, there's an element of stress in that, you know, not, not being at ease with the moment. And so the way it is really includes both sides, the, the outer reality and the inner reality. So with, with the Buddhist teaching, you really learn to see that actually our, the world we create 
starts here, starts from here. And then we can see how when, when I believe, you know, I have enough and I'm content, then I can see I'm not irritated by what is happening outside. Or very little. Maybe still, I, you know, I still may, might have preferences, but I'm not so... Uh, I can recognize my preferences without getting wound up when they are not met by reality. So what does that do to you when I say that? You you can sit there and say, well, she's a nun, she doesn't have to earn money, she doesn't have to look after children. You know, but I have to, you know, my life is different. I have to pay my mortgage, you know, I have to see that I can survive when my job is finished. So what does that to do? Uh, do to you when you hear about this kind of letting go and this passion about the world. <laughs> I, I really ask that not as, as a rhetoric question. It's really, you know, everybody has to meet themselves. And so with the families, we, we were discussing that, you know. Um, you know, when you have a child, you have a wife, you have a job, you have a house, you, you know, you have expenses, your children want to study. You have to make money come in. So there's some kind of discomfort you have to take on in order to be able to do that. It's your responsibility as a father or a mother. And, yes, you know, you can, I, I just met one family where the mother lost her job. You know, so that has an effect on the family finances. So how can the family then maybe be a bit more content with what they have? How, how, you know, how can they live together in harmony with less money? So there are lots, there's lots, lots of potential for creativity, I, I would suggest, really. You know, to, to really see whether uh, one's life can be simplified in some ways. You know, whether a new car is really making us happy or maybe, you know, we had one exercise, who would you be without? Or can you, what is it what you don't want to live without? Yeah, I, 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 what, what, what is it what you think you can't live without? I can't live without my car. Is it true? Yes. Yes? So what, if you turn it around, I can live without my car. In which ways could that be true as well? Imagine you, you know, when did it happen that you didn't have a car in the past year? It was in repair. I had to go by bicycle. How was that? Actually, good. <laughs> it's much healthier. You know, I felt much more alive. Right. And I don't want to suggest anything, but I think there's a lot of potential for creativity in, in you know, making your life simpler, more easeful. And yet, living in the world, in, in the end, you can't escape the ups and downs. You can just maybe find a more um, peaceful level of affairs, maybe. Yeah. And I think each of you will know what that could be, but you might not quite be there. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I mean, when you educate children, you can't tell them, don't engage, you know, don't go for success, because, you know, when you have to perform in school, you only will finish school when you know how to perform and, and put, you know, your best. So right effort is actually something the Buddha does recommend. 
And that's now really interesting. That's the turning point. You know, you can use the worldly aims and values to a certain degree to build up the spiritual aims and values, the, the qualities you need also for enlightenment and, and Buddhist practice in a, in a wider sense. So right effort is very important. If you sit and meditate and want to concentrate on your breath and you don't, you haven't trained your mindfulness, you know, it's a good opportunity to do that. It's not just, oh, let it come as it wants, you know, because you will just fall asleep or just daydream. So that doesn't bring benefit. So right effort, right mindfulness are really skills which a child can develop, whether, you know, meditating or not. For everything, whether in school, whether in university, whether in in developing, you know, skills for for professions, you need that. You need patience. And patience is, is the Buddha praises as the utmost quality for monastics also. And if I get impatient because I don't, I'm not yet enlightened, I leave. <laughs> so uh, we have to pay, be patient to learn to be patient with ourselves. And then we, we might be patient with others. We have to learn kindness. You know, if things don't go the way we want them to go, be kind with ourselves. And not critical, oh, now here I'm again, failure, da, da, da. No, actually I did my best, you know, congratulations. And this is how far I got this time. And if I continue, I may, you know, get a bit further next time. So, yeah, you can probably, when you look at the, there's a book of Ajahn Suchito about the parami, you know, the spiritual qualities. Um, so there's a lot to develop, you know, where it's, Pretty similar to, to lay life. We have the Mangala Sutta, which since a few years we have the English version in our uh, chanting book in the temple, where the supreme blessings, how you bless yourself in your life. So it starts with living in suitable places, living with the right kinds of friends, which are supportive. So there's a lot you can do in your life. Learning skills, you know, learning your your craft, learning right speech, being being skillful in what you're doing, not harming each other, looking after your family, looking after your parents, giving dana. So then, then it goes into the first it it concentrates more on, on really family life and then it, it goes on more towards giving down a practicing generosity so that the fixation on me, 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 you know, my, my progress, my success, my gain, that that can be shared. And so then, then the restriction of the heart can relax and we can open ourselves, our hearts to, to the lives of others and the needs of others. Empathy, you know, compassion, loving kindness. So these are all qualities which make us strong in a way that we are not so dependent on gain and loss that, that we are willing to share and then also we will get the benefit for, from that because others might willing might be willing to share with us and then it's it's hearing the dhamma frequently taught and it's one of the verses hearing the noble truth you know understanding the noble truth for oneself and then slowly it goes to realizing nibbana you know that that's the gradual path so this is how, how you can bless yourself in just following the path 
from where you are, you know, acknowledging where you are and finding the practice which really makes yourself stronger in your contentment and your ability to look inward instead of just outward. And so to understand really where happiness is coming from. That happiness is not depending on, or the happiness which is depending on outer success is not reliable. So if you find happiness you know, in meditation and in your own goodness and in your sharing and connecting with others, that is a happiness which which you can build on. So I think all of you will have some kind of experience of that. It's it's more what I say is more something to remember maybe <laughs> or or to bring back really into your life. And I have, I have uh, found this book from Ajahn Anand, and, or, and I just want to read. There's a little phrase here in the end, and I didn't bring my glasses, but I can read it. Though we are born into this world, we fail to see the world. To whatever extent humans seek for happiness outside themselves, the further they are away from the happiness within. Does that make sense? No. And that doesn't mean you deny your bodily needs or your need for, for some kind of safety, material safety. But if you just remember that that material safety is not what will make you happy or independent, you know, that there's a deeper safety. We, we call it the three refuges. You know, it's called refuge because that is where the safety comes from, where the real peace comes from. Taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. And that means not just the words, you know, we can do that as a ritual, but it really means to fill that with meaning for yourself. So I can only encourage you to do that <clears throat> you know, to investigate your your values, what what is it that makes you tick? <laughs> you know, what is it that makes you alive? What is it that you want to engage in? And I would really encourage you to investigate before you just run on automatic. Really look what the results are and how long they will last. So these, these, this investigation about the three um, characteristics, you know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self, you can do that in everyday life, not just when you sit with closed eyes and watch the breath, maybe, or the pain in your knee. You can do it with everything. So Ajahn Chah would say, you know, when you see this glass, see it as already broken. And then you can use it skillfully. You don't throw it on the floor. You still use it skillfully. But you are aware of that it's impermanent, and at some point it will break. So you don't even have to pretend you don't know. One of the beautiful pictures in, in the Samsara film was they, they had these new cars and then they had these machines which kind of where the cars get, get you know, squashed in the end to, to be shredded then into kind of just material, uh, metallic pieces. And you see these cars and this machine goes... <laughs> 
and the whole thing goes flat. And it's, it's just so such a, I must say, such a beautiful picture, you know, to see that all our identification, you know, it will go like this. It's it's like a symbol, really, for for right. This is how it goes, you know. And just to live in that awareness, you know, awareness is not just being aware of, oh, you know, this is black and this is oh, this is pink. It's about where does this come from and where does it, how does it end? Where does it start? How does it end? You know, where does this? Where did that start and how will this end? And then you can live your life, you know, in, in the, in the real awareness of your place and time and your, your choices. I think I should, Lada, I told Lada that she asked me whether I have a clock. And I said, no, I don't need a clock because usually you start putting the tea out. So the tea is out. It's there is actually a clock which says five past three. So I would invite you to have your tea now. And then maybe we gather in uh, 10 minutes again and can, 15 minutes? Okay, 15 minutes. And have question and answers. So enjoy your tea. Please enjoy your tea. <laughs>